Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. I'm Jennifer McNally, CEO of the American Society Safety Professionals, and your host for today's show. I'm excited to be back on the WAM Podcast and look forward to bringing safety into everyday conversations. When I think about the discussions ahead, I think about the role of safety in the workplace, and I think about the role of our 38,000 members keeping everyone safe. Now, the one constant I know is change. In an environment in which change is accelerated in the workplace, what does that mean for the safety professional and the workers they support? We're going to start that discussion today talking about gender. Joining us today is Dr. Corey Wong, Assistant Vice President for Gender Equity within the Office of the Vice President of Diversity at Colorado State University. Corey, please tell us a little about yourself. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me join you today. I work at Colorado State University leading initiatives on gender equity. The focus is largely on how to create supportive and inclusive cultures so that everybody can thrive. So I look at the organization of our institution as an employer and a place for higher education to lead some culture change to make CSU one of the best places it can be for everyone. Gender equity. So that's that's a big anchor of our conversation today. And diversity and inclusion are really important topics. Certainly as safety professionals, we care about our workers and want to take care of them by providing a safe work environment. But that can be difficult when we don't really understand their experience or how that experience affects the work that they're asked to do. Often, you know, in my experience, organizations struggle with these issues because there's really so many layers that can play a part of this, and it can seem really daunting. So I'm hoping today mm-hmm. we'll get a little clarity on the issue, that for safety professionals, you know, what should they be thinking about with respect to gender diversity and inclusion? It's an important piece of a really large puzzle. Corey, let's start with your personal story and, you know, what brought you here today? Well, my personal story that leads me to gender equity work really starts in college when I was looking for a discipline that would give me a lens to really understand the world. And I was frustrated because I took all these classes with all sorts of different professors and didn't really find a home until I was introduced to philosophy, and in particular, feminist philosophy. So I loved what I learned through feminist theory in particular because it gave me the tools and the language and the concepts and ideas to help better understand the world around me, to better understand my own identity and the experiences that I've had, but put it also in a critical light so that it wasn't just an explanation of here's why things happen, but really feminist theory provides the angle for how to recognize where there are opportunities to make progressive change and do things differently so that the world can be better and people can live better in it. So I went on to graduate school at Penn State and got a dual degree in feminist philosophy and women's studies. And from there on, like the, the lens of gender and feminist theory can be applied to pretty much anything. You can look at the world through a feminist perspective and better understand and analyze all sorts of different things from politics to the environment to labor systems to just how you even decorate your house. (laughs) So there's all sorts of applications for it, but I wanted to stay in higher education, came back to Colorado State University where I got my undergraduate degree and just started getting involved in really critical conversations around what we could do at the university to make it 
better for women in particular, but that expands to gender diversity, so including trans and non-binary folks, and understanding how gender plays out through all levels of the institution itself. So now I do this work in an administrative capacity, and I really like that the feminist theory is put into practice now in my professional role. So I think my job is to continue with the education lens and help others be able to gain those tools and concepts and ideas so that they can also navigate through their world differently um, and kind of demystify theory and put it into practice so that people can apply it in really concrete ways in whatever realm or whatever industry they might be engaging in. So I love your journey that you've had and sort of the depth of your experience. And so much of my own personal experience has had elements of sort of some of the common themes associated with predominantly women, advancement of women. You know, we're on women and manufacturing radio. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I'm really proud about in my career is some of the work that I've done around um, women in manufacturing, sort of some of the the leadership development activities that I've had. And I I can remember being in a room of 130 of our nation's women leading leading women manufacturers, and and the discussion of safety came up. And I'm not going to quite get this quote right. It was much more compelling in a room full of peers in which somebody stood up and said um, they were talking about, is this a man's job or a woman's job? You know, they're not 50% of the manufacturing workforce, closer to 27% today. But in the context mm-hmm. of this, somebody else stood up and said, you know, it's not about how men do jobs or how women do jobs, it's how all of us do jobs safe. And that, to me, I think is one of the things our safety professionals really do understand, need to understand. And last October, you and I had the chance to first meet at our Women in Safety Summit here in Chicago. And mm-hmm. through the course of that discussion, you actually presented four lenses in which we, be, we should be thinking about gender and I'd like to unpack that a little bit. I had the great pleasure of hearing a very long keynote. So if I'm thinking about gender for our listeners, can you explain a little bit about the four lenses that we should be thinking about? Yes. And uh, before we go into those four different points, I think I want to make another additional kind of preliminary comment, which is that when we're talking about gender especially relating to the story you just told about being in that room with a bunch of women in leadership, that gender is something that everybody has, and it affects everybody every single day. So it's not so much just identifying women and saying that these issues around gender are only of women's concerns, but gender is something that permeates our culture on all sorts of different levels, and it's really our task is to be able to see how and where gendered norms or biases or behaviors and expectations can actually shape the world that we live in. So I first want to make sure we recognize that when we're talking about gender issues, they apply to everyone and they're always around us all the time and that's what makes our culture what it is. So with that, being able to effectively analyze how gender shows up and where there's opportunities for change, one of the four lenses that I first mentioned was that of intersectionality. And this is a key concept that's coming from Kimberly Crenshaw. She coined the term in 1989. She was a legal scholar, and her emphasis was that if we are thinking about feminist perspectives or talking about women's issues, that we're going to be missing major parts of the issue and the problem, and thus will be pretty 
adequate at addressing the issues if we're not looking through a lens of intersectionality. And intersectionality is a conceptual tool that helps us better see how systems of oppression intersect with one another and then because of that create qualitatively different experiences that have to be accounted for. So Kimberly Crenshaw's work focused on the experiences of black women in particular as they navigate systems that reflect gender bias or sexist tendencies and racism. And so you can think about intersectionality as an appreciation or attentive awareness of how different systems of oppression might interact with each other. And those can be classism or ableism in addition to racism and that, those kinds of things. So the idea behind an intersectional lens is to be as inclusive as possible and not just narrow in on some of the more visible or prominent experiences that people might be focusing on. That's a critique of the feminist movement as focusing largely on white women's concerns or heterosexual white women's concerns and thereby missing the lot of so many other women's experiences that are also really important for us to pay attention to. So when you take intersectionality into account, one of the takeaways is that if you really want to be looking at increasing inclusion and supporting diverse populations and responding to the needs of people who need need to have more opportunities available to them, that effort can be approached by looking at the margins of the margins rather than just generally say women, we might default to some of the more dominant views of women, namely white women. But if we start with the most marginalized among women, so limited income women, women of color, those are the kinds of perspectives that we can start with first. And when we address the needs of the most marginalized, we actually are more effective at, at supporting the groups that are marginalized in total. So intersectionality is a key principle of kind of where to begin when looking at how to understand gender disparities and inequities that are differently affecting multiple marginalized populations. I want to pause. I, They're just going on to that. No. I, 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 one of the things, again, that I really walked away from and is, is that statement of the margins of the margins, if we understand the extremes and are addressing them and certainly how that applies within a safety environment, then everybody will be safe. I think that's, that's an, an important understanding for our listeners. Yeah. I've shifted in some of the way that I talk about that because it's a concept that people hear and then maybe it gets popularized and people start using it, but we don't fully understand the real power behind what Kimberly Crenshaw offered by articulating this as a tool for analysis. So like when you look at, for instance, pay equity is a really easy example where we can say women make 77 cents on the dollar or something to men, but white women tend to make more than that, maybe upwards towards 80 cents, but women of color, black and Latino women in particular, make anywhere from 50-something to 60-something cents on the dollar. And so when you think about the differences of women's experiences of pay equity alone, you're going to have an impartial understanding of that if you're only assuming a general number without looking at the particular extra marginalization that women of color face. And that's not just gender bias at work, and that's also racism at work. And then we could also put into there probably some classism of how that shapes people's experiences. So that's why intersectionality is important. That's very helpful to know. What does it mean from an individual perspective? There's another lens. Yeah. So this, the other lens was um, thinking about how to really provide additional support and encourage individuals. So in this case, it would be thinking women or those who are underrepresented in their field 
with the opportunities to be successful. And one of the tendencies is to focus on a model of empowerment where the effort is put on the individuals to say, we're going to give you support and resources and trainings and clubs and all sorts of other additional experiences and resources to help you get to a place where you can succeed in this environment that wasn't set up for you. The empowerment model focuses so much on changing the individuals or supporting the individuals, but it doesn't focus so much on changing the culture itself or removing the barriers that prevent people from being able to succeed in those contexts. So I tried to differentiate the difference between an empowerment model of support versus something that actually is more effective at recognizing and elevating the skills and talents and capabilities that many people already have, but they're inhibited from being able to actualize and embody their skills and talents, whether it's leadership or just being an excellent worker or a leader, because systemically and culturally there are barriers that prevent them from being able to achieve those goals. So removing barriers and offering support through creating a more inclusive culture is, I think, a much more effective way to really advance change and inclusion beyond an empowerment model that focuses on getting individuals to fit into a culture or to work harder to succeed in a culture that ultimately is still not supportive of their success in it. Um, That statement of the removing of barriers, again, another one of the takeaways from our first interaction was, you know, I now am thinking, you know, my job as the CEO, where are there barriers that I hadn't thought about as barriers? So um, Mm -hmm. I think that's something else that safety professionals should be looking at is, that process of removing in barriers. You also talked a little bit about what it meant from a group environment and from a systems environment. Those are two other areas that I think our listeners would benefit from today. So can you talk about those two Mm -hmm. as well? Yeah, and those two um, additional lenses build directly off of the idea of creating a culture that actually is supportive and has less barriers for people to succeed. So when we think about the culture overall um, and say that's where we want to make change, not on the individual to force them to fit into a culture, then you can start looking at different levels of where there might be interventions and the removal of barriers. So one of those could be at the group or interpersonal level. That is where a good amount of my work of what I do at CSU focuses on, on helping people better understand that the practices that we employ or the ways that we do things could be laden with microaggressions or unconscious bias or just the sort of subtle, more nuanced things that create experiences for people who are already marginalized that reiterate to them that they're not welcome, that they're not wanted, and they're perceived as less than. So that can happen with um, the way that meetings are run. If women of color are interrupted or or not invited to certain spaces, uh, the ways that we operate and do things, that's, again, process and practices, interpersonal dynamics. This is a kind of place where most people are probably not meaning to cause harm, but their good intentions aren't enough to prevent harmful or destructive experiences for those who end up experiencing themselves as being marginalized and excluded. So beyond intention, we have to get to the level of impact and recognize that whether or not people are aware of it or whether or not they mean it, we could be inadvertently doing certain things with our normal everyday operations 
that only exacerbate the kind of isolation or alienation that some people might feel because of their identities and their backgrounds. So for that level of process and practices, I think doing training on unconscious bias and being able to identify microaggressions, that's important for elevating understanding so people can identify those things. But then you go into things like bystander intervention and how people can interrupt problematic practices or speak up on behalf of somebody else or call somebody in and say, hey, do you know that this actually can really negatively impact someone? And that's not a really nice thing to say, or you maybe maybe don't mean it, but that's a stereotypical assumption that you're making, and it's not fair to put that on somebody else. So that's a cultural level of how people interact with one another that I think is really important. And of course, the next level is going to be on systems levels, and that includes things like policies, how resources are allocated, how decisions are made, and at that level, you can really work on structural changes. There may be policies, for instance, in play that don't equitably support different people and the needs that they might have. This is often really tricky for people to see because policy is kind of one of those worlds where we assume that neutral language means that it is equally supportive of everyone, but that neutrality ends up coding certain biases or inequities that actually need to be corrected for. So, for instance, if we had a policy that didn't mention anything about lactation needs, that any time that someone is nursing, that's going to just be outside of the parameters of even consciousness. So, of course, we don't have those things, but if we're compliant with our regulations. But it's an example of how if we assume everyone is the same and we write our policies in that way, then we'll actually end up excluding people um, inadvertently. I think ADA and uh, disability advocacy is another important way to talk about this, where it's not even special accommodations for people. They're appropriate accommodations that help people be successful. And structural changes like that can have a really good influence on shaping the culture. So the culture can influence policies, but then certain policies and system-level issues can also help with the culture. So like pay equity, again, as an example, could be something where if the systems were in place to have equitable pay, then that might help enhance the culture where everybody feels respected rather than feeling they have to fight against the system to just be valued on the same terms as everybody else. Right. Um, a thing and about the systems level when we're trying to make change, I think it's important to also recognize how power plays into those systems. So I think top-level decision-making often is kind of where systems are more in the purview of someone's actions. So you have CEOs like yourself and other people at the top of an organization thinking, what kind of structural changes do we need to make? And on that level, I think it's actually a shift in the culture if we try to level out that hierarchy a little bit and have more conversation and, and direct understanding of what are the experiences of the people who are sort of on the front lines of the issues, the people who have firsthand experience, and they see these challenges. They are the ones who experience hiccups or obstacles and problem areas. If we don't have them at the table or we're not doing active outreach to make sure that their input is what's being taken into account, then structural and systems-level changes that are initiated from the top down will probably also be pretty ineffective. And I think that's, in my experience, and manufacturing and I don't I don't know if this is unique across other sectors, even with some of the challenges that may exist. One of the things that I always respected was the respect for the front line and understanding where problems and issues were. Mm -hmm. Because they're the ones doing the jobs every single day. Therefore inherent in that 
improvement process is, you know, see something, say something, identify it, bring it up, you know, right, in that process. And, and I do think taking that in the policy and resource allocation, certainly, you know, where budgets <laughs> meet the front lines and having people include, mm-hmm. included in the decision-making and even understanding it from their perspective is truly important. So, so our safety professionals, you know, wake up every day worrying about the people that are in under their purview in the worlds that they work in. And I'd like to take sort of those lenses and apply them in a practical world for our safety professionals. So how might someone consider these issues and those lenses when they're doing, for example, incident investigation? Whenever there's an incident, it's never really just one cause. There's always multiple causes. And often there could be an underlying system element associated with that. And some of the things that we like to think about is, you know, don't blame the person, understand the reason Mm -hmm. behind it and look to mitigate that because ultimately we are all human. So as an incident investigator, I'm in a safety role. What should I be thinking about? Where do I need to raise my consciousness in this space? Well, I think probably the first step is to go back to where we started in the conversation with the acknowledgement that something like gender informs and imbues literally everything. You can look anywhere and find the influence of gender in that. And the same goes for race and class and ability. And so I think first and foremost, safety professionals will have to do some pretty heavy lifting on their own to educate themselves about these issues to better be able to identify where and how things that we might think are completely unrelated to the work, because those are identities, not, you know, what happens in the workplace. We need to be able to see where and how certain identities do play out in the workplace. It may not seem explicit, but it's there. So educating ourselves first to be able to recognize those patterns and the realities of how they show up is important. But the other thing is, like you said, it's not mentioned, it's not focusing so much on the person is responsible and it's a human error, but what else could be at play? There could be cultural factors that maybe exacerbate risk for safety. So if not everybody, for instance, is abiding by the rules, maybe there are certain groups of workers who are a little bit more lax with their responsibility of keeping because maybe they assume someone else will be the one to follow in their footsteps and clean up after them. In certain spaces, that's a very gender dynamic where women in particular are expected to clean up or do more of the caretaking roles, and men just assume that they can continue moving through the world with a level of almost entitlement that it'll get done even if they're not the ones doing it. That can play out in office settings. It can play out in workplaces. It can play out in families and home. So, Those are more gendered behaviors and assumptions that come up on that group and interpersonal level that I was talking about earlier. That's the kind of how the culture of gender norms and expectations could be at play. So it may be relevant. The other thing would be systems and structures that in a safety consideration, the bias towards men as the default for how things have been done, how things have been created, the material conditions that we all navigate through, That is undeniable, and the influence of those kinds of assumptions of who is the norm and how the world gets built around them could mean that certain equipment doesn't actually fit people's bodies, or the machinery that they're using could be at a height that isn't actually appropriate for them because the standard has been assumed to be six feet tall, and they're not. And there might even be other things, you know, like if someone is 
rushing and there's an accident because of they're maybe just a little bit less mindful of their environment, they may be rushing for other purposes. Like if someone has family responsibilities and they need to be leaving quickly, then that's something that we might think is a personal matter that shouldn't affect the work. But we also have to be thinking of the ways that people's holistic lives will show up and influence how they are even in the workplace. So needs might exist for people outside of just what it is in their role as an employee that could inform all sorts of different scenarios. So I think you can look at culture, you can look at the culture of the organization, how people are interacting with one another or supporting each other, material conditions, and the literal structures around them, and then some of the systematic views that we might have of assumptions of what it means to be a worker and actually living as a human with a full life outside of our obligations at work, too, that could also influence how we are showing up at work. So that topic, and I'll use the term total worker health, <laughs> certainly is mm-hmm. a Good. priority issue and discussion here within ASSP. And it is, again, people show up every single day and are a product of experiences, as you've shared, and the lives that they live outside of the jobs that they do. And I kind of call that their role and their identity, and those two are often intertwined, and they are, in mm-hmm. fact, distinct. So as we close out our segment today, i like to share a tip with our listeners. I'm going to come back to what I still think is a profound statement that certainly changed my behavior, which is my responsibility to remove barriers. And I think what I learned today is don't assume I know what the barriers are. Go ask. Mm -hmm. So can you share a tip with our listeners today? Yeah, I think that the tip would be something about making a conscious everyday commitment to practice building awareness for how these things show up because it's ongoing. No matter if you are studying it regularly, you have a PhD in feminist theory, there's always a new way to be able to understand how gender and other identity issues can interplay in our everyday life. So part of that is doing our own work and learning, but then also talking about it. So the tip would be to share the things that we learn. And if there's something new to us, like, oh, I never realized that that actually, maybe that doesn't apply to everybody. Sharing that with another person is kind of a catalyst for the education process. And I think that can be really helpful to create dialogue, to help build awareness, and then also reinforce a sense of community that we all have room to learn and grow, but we can do it better when we do that together. Well, I love that sharing. We are a community that shares and learns from each other. Corey, I can't thank you enough. I feel like I learn something every time I have the opportunity to interact with you. I hope that our listeners here on the WAM podcast have enjoyed today's conversation as much as I have, and I truly appreciate your insights on what is a very important topic for our safety professionals. To learn more about the WAM podcast, sorry, Corey, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate being brought into these conversations with you all. It's great. Oh, yes, and again, thank you. So to our listeners, to learn more about the WAM podcast, please follow us on Twitter at WAM underscore podcast and connect to us through the American Society of Safety Professionals. Visit us at our website at ASSP.org or follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.